Welcome to the Wild and Curious podcast, a show that's part travel, part feminism, and completely inspired by extraordinary women worldwide. I'm Teresa Christine. And I'm Suzanne Schmetting. We're talking with someone today who used to be very afraid of spiders. She was actually an arachnophobe, like in the technical sense. Mm-hmm. And she's no longer afraid of spiders and now uses them in her work, which is pretty badass. <laughs> if, I, if I may say so myself. <laughs> I like how you're being hesitant about it. Like, badass. <laughs> uh, the spiders can get you, which, uh, you know, I understand is, is, very, is a very scary thought because I feel afraid of spiders. Yeah? Yeah. You know, they're, they're creepy and crawly and they can bite you and have before they have yeah yeah I've got a spider bite scar no big deal Mm. pretty tough how do you feel about spiders mixed it depends on the spider (laughs) (laughs) I'm very much like sometimes I'll see one and I'll be like get on your way little guy just (laughs) get on your way and then other times I'll see one and I'll be like you and me (laughs) are not friends so it just all depends and I I think it's, it depends on my moods. I just, I'm so flighty. So really like every day is different, (laughs) but I, I I don't, I think I've been, been bitten by a spider once, but Mm -hmm. I don't have a scar. So that's pretty crazy that you had a scar. It must've swelled up and been insane. Yeah. It was, it was pretty gross. Nice. Um, Yeah. No, it was (laughs) Like I get, I get such a gory pleasure from thinking about like all the pus that was drained from my back. Um, but we so don't have to you're talk gonna about have, you're gonna, you bring in all the boys to the yard with this conversation. <laughs> I know. It's like when you compare that, like with how I dance on the dance floor, like I, I'm a catch. Our guest today is Samantha Nixon, a final year PhD student at the Institute for Molecular Bioscience, the University of Queensland, and the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. Her research harnesses the unique chemistries in spider venoms to develop medicines against blood-sucking worms. So it's, it's really funny that I ended up in this space because I was clinically arachnophobic as in I could not even go out and hang up my washing because there would be spiders (laughs) on the clothesline um I would shake and I would have panic attacks and I just happened to be uh going to a lecture a biochemistry lecture where my now supervisor was talking about how we can use spider venoms and they're filled with all these amazing neurotoxins. But if you look at individual neurotoxins, then we can shut down the parts of the brain involved in epilepsy or chronic pain. And I thought that that was just the coolest idea I had ever heard. I had this this kind of interest in the back of my mind about using the natural world to make new medicines. And I thought, if you can take a deadly spider and somehow turn it into something that can help people, then that's something I want to be involved in. Um, and the other part was I really wanted to challenge myself to get over my fear. So when I joined the lab, I actually put my hand up to take care of the spiders because, um, through the exposure therapy and also naming them, I was able to educate myself and get over my fear. Oh yeah. I think I remember reading that. Didn't you name one of them Beyonce? Yes. Um, (laughs) I went through, (laughs) 
you can't be scared of a spider named Beyonce. Exactly. And I also <laughs> had Whitney Houston. Oh my gosh. Um, Whitney Houston turned out to be a male tarantula. So then I had to <laughs> rename him Houston. Um, currently I have Lizzo, uh, the tarantula and mm. I have Tiana, the golden huntsman, and I have Bertie, the funnel web. And so I give them kind of cutesy names because it helps to make me less scared of them. And then when I do education and outreach, it also helps other people go, oh, well, if you've named it Bertie, how bad can it be? <laughs> That's really impressive because from an Amer like from a person in the United States, our idea of the spiders in Australia is that they are so frightening and enormous and like the pictures I've seen of spiders in Australia are insane. Yeah, we definitely have some impressive species here. But the thing with <laughs> spiders is most of them are actually not dangerous to people at all. There's over 50,000 species around the world and less than 0.5% of those are actually dangerous to people. And that's really just the redbacks or you would call them black widows, mm -hmm. um, funnel web spiders, uh, Brazilian wandering spiders and the brown recluse. And of course, in Australia, we have redbacks and funnel webs. So we have the Sydney funnel web, which is considered the most dangerous spider in the world. Um, but actually, since the development of anti-venom in the 1980s, there haven't been any deaths. And do you know how many deaths there were recorded before the development of anti-venom? Do you want to take a guess? Ooh, oh my gosh. 200,000, 600,000, a million. 13. <laughs> So spiders really have this kind of bad reputation that they really don't deserve, you know, compared to cars and all these other things that we do in our daily life. They're really not that big of a threat to us. So less than a million. Yes. Yeah. Okay, compared great. to snake bite, which still kills um, thousands of people every year. Gotcha. Oh boy. So you take this venom from the spiders. Uh, like, how do you... Is the proper like it's not milking? Like, how do you yeah, get yeah, venom we from do, a spider? We do call it milking. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, then how do you milk a spider? <laughs> uh, very carefully is the short way. Um, it's sort of similar to how you get venom from a snake, but we're working with obviously a smaller animal. So the thing with spiders is they don't want to give up their venom if they don't have to. It takes a lot of energy for them to produce it. And they need it for predation, so hunting down their prey, and also to defend themselves. So basically what we do um, is we pick the spider up by the cephalothorax. So that's basically the back of the head. And we'll position them over a little tube wrapped in a uh, plastic. And we get the spider to bite down. And then we give them a very small electric shock to the muscles over the venom gland. And that makes those muscles squeeze the venom through the fang into the tube but you only get a couple of tiny, tiny drops. So we have to collect from a lot of spiders to have enough venom. So one of the things that we do is we usually work with tarantulas because bigger spider means more venom. Oh my gosh. And this venom, it's, I mean, you're working right now on a project of working on a parasite that's affecting a huge population of sheep in Australia. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So my current PhD is all about harnessing the molecules within spider venoms to make new medicines against parasites. And the parasite that I mostly focus on is called the barber's pole worm. And this is a really, really serious parasite, particularly for the Australian sheep industry. These kinds of worms cost our industry over $450 million every year. 
And just like bacteria, they become resistant to the drugs that we use to treat them. And we actually have resistance to all available drug classes. So we really need to find new drugs to protect these sheep and also Australian farmers. And from that work, um, I was really the first person to actually look at venoms against, against these kinds of parasites. And nobody thought it would work, but we were actually able to identify quite a few molecules with potential against these sheep parasites. So then I thought, can we apply those discoveries to human parasites, to cattle parasites, cats and dogs? Um, so then I uh, started this kind of international collaboration across Europe and the US where we were looking at venoms against um, the major parasites of veterinary medicine and human medicine. So parasites really are still one of the biggest problems in both of those fields. And actually of the neglected tropical diseases, most are caused by parasites. So we have the world's largest venom collection here at the University of Queensland. And we were able to use our collection against malaria, uh, blood flukes, which are horrible worms that live inside the blood vessels of the intestines and the bladder, um, and also hookworms as well. And we found venoms that were able to kill every single parasite that we tried. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is That must be so satisfying, especially since you are truly like the first person who was thinking of doing something like this. Yeah. So, I mean, people had sort of looked at venoms against malaria a little bit in the past, um, but no one had tried them against parasitic worms. And parasitic worms are actually the biggest group of the um, parasitic infections for particularly our, our animals. So they're a huge problem for cats, dogs, cattle, and sheep. And they kind of get ignored because they just, it's something that, you know, is just not as visible. Uh, people know about cancer, people know about dementia, but they don't know that there are hundreds of millions of people still affected by parasitic worms. And because uh, we just don't have that visibility, there's not that support for that research. Um, and I guess that's probably why people hadn't had the opportunity to look at this before. So when you talk about the visibility and, you know, the work that you're doing is incredibly valuable and helping the community, how are you communicating to people, you know, spiders are friends, like what are <laughs> ways that you're engaging with people so that they appreciate spiders more? Yeah, this is a really important area for me personally, because I also never imagined myself as a scientist. I had never, never met a scientist. I just didn't know that that was even a real profession that I could do after school. Um, so I do a lot of work going out to schools and talking about my research and showing kids that actually you can pursue that love of biology or that fascination with space. Um, and I also do a lot of work on um, television. So I particularly focus on children's television and showcasing the spiders because I think um, kids are really where you can inspire that curiosity, right? Like I think most kids love going out into their garden and seeing what bugs are out there. And if you can <laughs> talk to them at that age and say, actually, you know, you don't have to be scared of spiders, um, that's where you can make a real impact. And then more broadly to try to talk to, I guess, adults about the implications of my work. I do um, some radio work here in Australia. Um, I write articles in plain um, English uh, that mm. are accessible to the public. And I particularly do a lot of rural focused media work. So I 
um, try to talk to more of those country publications because that's where our sheep farmers are and I want to open up that dialogue. And you also recently had like 300 people messaging you about spiders because you kind of wanted to expand your collection, right? Yeah. Um, so earlier this year, um, pre-travel bans, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were looking for spiders. So I just put a little call out on Twitter um, asking if people in the Brisbane area of Queensland where I live, if they had any big spiders that we could come and find to collect venom from. And it ended up going um, international. So it got picked up by our national media here. And all of a sudden I had people messaging me from around Australia, literally hundreds of people getting on board, going out into their garden and looking at what kind of spiders are there. And um, I was so excited because people were telling me that they were scared of spiders, but um, this prompted them to go out and get over their fear because they were excited about how the spiders could help science. And that was exactly what my feelings were when I started my PhD. So it was nice to have that kind of um, next generation, I suppose. Uh, and then even people from Texas started calling me, <laughs> offering to send me spiders. But obviously with uh, biosecurity, we can't take any spiders outside of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> But I appreciate That's really it. cool though. Yeah, for sure. It's like you're passing the torch of arachnid appreciation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you said that you never thought of yourself as a scientist. And now that you're in this space, how do you feel that the female representation in science is? I think at, so I'm still in my PhD, I'm getting to the end and definitely at the PhD level, we have very, very good representation of women. It's, it's pretty close to 50, 50, at least in the life sciences. But the problem is it's when you get to those more senior levels, then the women rapidly drop out. Right. Um, and that's where I think we need to be. There's a, there's a lot of effort about encouraging women into science. I think um, women are just as interested in science as boys, you know, at school level. It's just that you, you start to notice, like even myself at school, I was equally good at science, biology, chemistry, as I was at English and languages, but I was always pushed to study languages and I was going to become a lawyer because that's what I was encouraged to do at school. And it was only because I happened to go on a field trip and visit um, one of the research science research institutes at the University of Queensland that I went, hang on, I, I can actually do this. <laughs> this is a thing. And, you know, I sort of went in then quite naive, not realizing that there was this gap in women in STEM. Um, and it's now that I'm getting more senior, you see, you look around at who are the professors, who are the group leaders, and you can count the number of women on one hand, right? Um, and so that's where I think the biggest gap for women in STEM is still at that senior leadership level. And there are a lot of good initiatives to try to address that. So here in Australia, we're launching the um, gender, uh, gender equity program, which is about encouraging women in STEM and really supporting them through the pipeline so that, you know, once you get your PhD, you're supported to continue on that upward traje trajectory. But I think it's there's a long way to go and obviously it's going to take some time to see if the measures that we're putting in place now are actually going to be successful. I hope so. Yeah, no, it is. I hope so too. Um, but speaking of that upward trajectory, you, uh, you won the Westpac scholarship and were chosen to participate in the expedition Homeward Bound. 
Yeah, uh, so I won a Westpac Future Leaders Scholarship to support my PhD, which um, is a, a prestigious scholarship here in Australia for um, identified young leaders in science and social change and Asia-Pacific relations. Um, and so basically that gave me a really, really strong backing and financial support to go on to do the research that I'm doing now, but also for professional development. And it just so happened that I was told I won this scholarship. And then um, about literally 18 hours later, I saw an email about a call for women around the world to apply to go on this expedition to Antarctica. And I thought, oh, I've just won um, a scholarship for professional development. Uh, I think I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for this expedition. And so that expedition was Homeward Bound, and it was basically a call out for women in STEM who want to change the world. And what they were going to do to help with that was to give you a year of leadership training that culminated in a trip to Antarctica. And I think Antarctica is really important in this space because it actually is a really good metaphor for the glass ceiling. You know, women weren't even really allowed to be scientists in Antarctica. Even in the 80s, the British Antarctic Survey was saying that women weren't strong enough to uh, cope with the conditions down there, which is simply not true, you know. Yeah. But it just highlights how recent, you know, some of these barriers uh, really, really are. I think a lot of people think of, you know, issues of racism and sexism as being something that happened, you know, in our grandparents' generation, but it's very much still going today and there are very obvious markers of that with the you know women not being allowed to go to Antarctica and yeah and it's like wild reasons they're just they're afraid of having women there I I went on a an expedition cruise to Antarctica last year and one of the one of the presentations that they had there was just about the female presence in Antarctica and like the lack of it for (laughs) such a long time you know absolutely so getting an all-women expedition together was just something that I thought was such a cool idea and to have this incredible network of women from all different countries, I think 13 countries were represented, um, different career stages, different disciplines. So, you know, one of the women on my um, trip was a Nobel Prize winner in physics and um, for me, I was actually the youngest person selected. So to be able to meet all of these incredible women and learn from their collective wisdom was such a fantastic opportunity. With, I mean, you're extraordinary and the work that you're doing is really cool. The fact that you overcame being afraid of spiders and are now naming them Beyonce and Whitney Houston is really inspiring. So how can people support women in STEM? I think to support women in STEM, you can look at the women in your own network and uh, any of them who want to get into a STEM field or are in a STEM field, um, having your own family and friends support you is, is actually incredibly valuable because, you know, you're constantly facing job insecurity, um, you know, we're, we're people who go into these fields, they want to make a difference in the world and the current geopolitical climate and this rise of kind of anti-intellectualism, anti-experts, um, in the kind of mainstream is really, really tough. And I feel women are often subjected to that more than men when women are visible communicators, 
you're like I myself and several of my friends who are visible science communicators, you know, we get um, sexual harassment. We get people messaging us, telling us that we don't know what we're doing, even though we absolutely do and we have the credentials to back it up. But, um, you know, Joe Smith on Twitter thinks that uh, my hair is too blonde to be qualified to comment on spiders or, you know, someone else disagrees that um, uh, like recently I identified a spider and I had hundreds of people contacting me saying that they disagreed with my identification. Um, <laughs> but then a man made the same identification and they accepted it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's I don't, things... you can't tell, but Suzanne and I are both shaking our heads right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, when you, when you see things like that play out on social media, it, it can actually be just very beneficial, even just to throw a like or a little message saying, Hey, I see what you're doing and I support you. Those, you know, those little interactions really help keep you going. And if you have um, kids and they want to just encourage them to study science, you know, if they have curiosities about dinosaurs, encourage that. If they have, if they're interested in the oceans, then, you know, encourage that. You don't have to be teaching them, you know, sitting them down at a chalkboard and going about mathematics. Science is all around us and there are so many ways to be involved in it. Uh, it's really just about encouraging curiosity and passion and asking questions. That is such a wonderful way to phrase it. And I really wish my science teachers had done the same for me. Exactly. Um, <laughs> like I hated science at school. I'll, I'm quite honest about that just because it was taught badly. It was read the textbook, answer these questions, do these sums. Right. And dissect the frogs. Ooh. Exactly. There was no encouraging, well, what questions are you interested in? You know, yeah. how teach I think what's more important is actually teaching people the skills to address their own questions. So where can you find that information? How do you think about it critically? And to me, that's what I love doing in science is looking for new questions, new problems, and then using my creativity to solve them. I love talking to her so much. A, she made it really relatable and easy to understand. And I think something that resonated a lot with me was, was the idea of teaching yourself to answer your own questions and being curious about the world around you. And yeah, and like having that be, having that be what leads you to discover things because it's going to be most interesting that way. Mm -hmm. And, and using your creativity to explore the world around you. Like I, I thought that was so cool. I thought that was perfectly phrased. Also, one thing that I'm like still fuming about is thinking about <laughs> people sending her messages and being like, mm, you're too blonde to be a scientist. No, I'd be just, so mad. I know. All I could think was just, ew. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, I, I mean, women know that experience, but especially with someone like her who is so forward facing with her job and, you know, not that she's famous, but she is in the public eye in the sense that she's done interviews and, you know, writes for newspapers. Yeah. And she's traveled all over, you know, she works with kids and education outreach programs. Um, yeah. And so t when you are putting yourself in that space, people can be especially horrible <laughs> to yeah. you. And oh. that that's very disappointing that she has to deal with that. So, uh, it, it's really cool to hear about the ways that you can help that and like support people and support women in STEM. 
If you would like to support Samantha and follow her uh, to learn all about the cool things that she is doing, um, she is on both Twitter and Instagram at at Sam and Science, which is S-A-M-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. If you enjoy listening to the Wild and Curious podcast and would like to contribute to helping us make this thing run, you can. You can Venmo us at The Wild and Curious or via PayPal at paypal.me slash The Wild and Curious. Anything you send, big or small, will go towards the cost of running a podcast that's dismantling the patriarchy. You can also follow along with our adventures on Instagram. Our handle is at underscore the wild and curious underscore. And we will also put that in the show notes for you. We are always looking for extraordinary women to talk to you on our show. If you have someone in mind or you are that someone, go to thewildandcurious.com to let us know. It means so much to us when people rate our show in iTunes and leave reviews. We read all of those sweet nothings. And yes, we cry about them. We laugh about them. We love them. We also love it when people send our podcast to someone who they think will enjoy it. Feminist sharing feminist content is the best. 